When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. And we are currently on lockdown here in the state of California. We hope each and every one of our listeners is safely isolating and healthy during this crisis. Of course, many of us have been forced to work from home for the first time, which we've covered on a few previous episodes. And today, we're really excited to have a frequent guest on and a great author of one of our favorite books, Give and Take, Adam Grant. This is one of the reasons why I love doing this show. When you listen to somebody, you read so much of their stuff, and then you have an opportunity to talk to them. And then not only that, dig in deeper some of the burning questions that we've had in reading his research. You know, it's been seven years since his book, Give and Take, came out, which is recommended reading for all of our bootcamp participants. And I'm sure a lot of our audience members have read the book. So I'm excited to see what has changed. What is his perspective on that book, as well as how can we get through this current situation? Adam's joining us today to talk about overcoming procrastination, how to deal with loneliness at work, and what we can do with the challenges that lie ahead of us. So I'm excited to chat with Adam. Now, if you're new to the show, we are all about actual tips and strategies on how to supercharge your social skills and turn that small talk into smart talk. Surround yourself with an army of high-status individuals to grow your social capital and unlock your hidden charisma to crush it in business, love, and life. Now, if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. And of course, if you're looking to make your lockdown or quarantine more productive, check out our Core Confidence Group Mentoring Program. You get access to our network with daily live videos from me, Johnny, and the AOC team. Core Confidence is all about defining your life and rewriting the story of who you are. Each week, you meet on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Pacific with your virtual group and coaches. We have weekly challenges that push you outside your comfort zone, grow your confidence, and deepen your connection with family, friends, and coworkers. And every mission is coronavirus quarantine friendly, so you don't even have to put yourself in danger while this is going on. We cover topics like dealing with negative emotions, defining your values, living in the present moment, identifying your limiting beliefs, and achieving crystal clear goals. Now, join a group of supportive and like-minded Art of Charm listeners to bond and grow during this crisis. Expand your network and connect virtually to reach your true potential. Our next group kicks off April 26th at 9 a.m. Pacific. We're accepting applications now with limited seats left. To learn more and apply today, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash core. That's theartofcharm.com slash C-O-R-E. Now let's get started with the show. Today, we have none other than Adam Grant with us. Adam is a psychologist and author specializing in organizational psychology. He's the author of many great books, Give and Take, Originals, and he even co-authored Option B with Facebook Sheryl Sandberg. Adam is a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, where he received his tenure at the young age of 28. He's also the host of a great podcast called Work Life, and this is his third time on our show. Welcome to the show, Adam. So good to have you back. So obviously, as an organizational psychologist, there is a lot to think about and 
deal with when it comes to all of us now working from home, being quarantined, really our lives changed rather dramatically, many of us unplanned even. What are your thoughts, obviously, in this environment with the coronavirus? Well, I've been calling for more companies to allow flex time and make it easy for people to work from home for a few years now. And I was especially convinced after there was this great call center experiment where people were randomly assigned to have a chance to do their call center jobs from home. And their productivity went up by 13%. The odds of quitting in the next six months dropped in half. Wow. And I looked at that and said, okay, what's, what's driving that? Well, one thing might be they're just saving time. Like they don't have to commute or get dressed. <laughs> but another factor is they really appreciate the autonomy they're being given. And, you know, it's a signal of trust from their employer that creates loyalty. They're more motivated. And then, of course, there's also the flexibility to work when they want and when it's productive for them. And if you stop there, this sounds really great. What I didn't anticipate <laughs> that we're all dealing with now is, one, we're not doing this by choice. We're all now forced to work from home. And so I think that sense of autonomy is lost. Two, many of us have our kids at home, too. And it's a lot harder to plan schedules trying to coordinate multiple. And so I think this is a much more difficult work from home experiment than what most companies have ever run or dealt with before. And to go along with that, I think it's also, for, and at least in AJ and I's experience in dealing with some of the young kids and interns and employees that we had who've worked from home, there has always been those people who seem to relish it and work really well. And for those people who just sort of fall apart in that environment because it is new and that environment leads to certain habits and decisions that are not going to lead you to be very productive. I think this is a lot easier for, obviously, for introverts, for people <laughs> who are comfortable working independently, you know, for people who love to be surrounded by people or community, this has been a lot harder. And I think many of us go through a slower transition where maybe we start working from home one or two days a week and still balance going into the office. But this happened rather suddenly and across the board for everyone. So it has certainly been quite the adjustment for many of us who aren't used to working remote at all. You know, it's interesting because as a writer, I basically worked from home my whole career. But then I have all these other hats that I wear where, you know, I'm on campus teaching classes I'm on the road giving keynote speeches and doing consulting projects. And so essentially a bunch of the different pieces of my job disappeared. And now, now I just have the work from home component. And it's interesting. I feel like in some ways I have more work time, but in other ways I really miss being out in the world, engaged with people, you know, in a face-to-face -face way. And I realize this is just so much easier for people who do, who do knowledge work. Uh, if, if you're in a manufacturing job or a service job, this is incredibly difficult. And I think we're just at the very beginning of trying to figure out how do we redesign jobs to make this work from a distance? Absolutely. And I think digging a little bit more into the science, a lot of our listeners are in leadership roles. And management through remote work is a lot different than in-person work. And what does your experience in the science tell us about being an effective leader when your team is dispersed and, and not on site? All right, AJ, I'm going to shock you here. Are you ready for this? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. Okay, the science says it's exactly the same except harder in many ways. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Good luck. <laughs> I think that it's clear from a lot of the research I've read that having to lead virtually amplifies a bunch of challenges but also opens up a few opportunities. The challenges are clear. It's difficult to get people on the same page, 
to create a sense of, of common mission, uh, to coordinate and communicate. People may lose a sense of motivation. I think it's worth talking about some of the things that, if they're not made easier, at least they, they change. So I think one thing that changes is a leader, all of a sudden, you have an excuse to be checking in with people at scale in a way that before you sort of had to do one-on-one. So let's say, Johnny, if I work for you, mm-hmm. if you sent me a survey every week to find out what was going on in my head, I think it would take until about week three before I said, you're a terrible boss. <laughs> if you, you, you want to figure out what I'm experiencing, you should probably meet with me one-on-one weekly and ask me, right? Yes. And, you know, I think now there's a degree of both necessity and license that leaders have to say, you know what, let's do a weekly pulse check. I know Qualtrics has rolled out a, a Qualtrics remote pulse where there's a standard survey you can, you can give out. It's available free. And it's just a simple way for leaders to find out, you know, in, at the group level as opposed to one-on-one, what are the biggest challenges and concerns that their employees are facing? And so it's a powerful learning opportunity. There's a certain amount of discipline that you need to have to make this work. And obviously, everyone has their own obstacles at home. As you mentioned, Adam, some folks might have little ones running around and you got to make them a tuna fish sandwich at noon. And some of us are working with our spouses for the first time and trying to find room in that house. And when you give people deadlines, it's nice for those deadlines to be met. But if you have somebody who's not disciplined, who just was like, well, I don't have to have this done till Friday noon. So I'll start on it Friday morning. It's like, well, you know, you could do that, but how long can you keep that up before the other people that you're working with start to realize that this person is just pushing off everything. They're just waiting to hit those deadlines. They're not really as motivated as everyone else on the team who are hitting milestones throughout those projects. I think that's that's a concern. I worry just as much about the uh, the opposite problem, which is people feeling a tremendous amount of stress and pressure to stay on top of their jobs so that right. they get to keep their jobs. And I think as a leader, the first thing I want to remember is that a lot of people are experiencing tremendous job insecurity right now. You know, they know that many companies are laying off employees, that there are furloughs in plenty of workplaces, hiring freezes. And there are open questions about whether you're, you're going to be able to stay employed if you can't get your work done. And I think for any leader that's worried about people slacking off, I would, I would just reinforce that message first and foremost. But then to your point, there are going to be some people who are less motivated than others or just they're just more overwhelmed and have more to manage at home. I think if that's the case, the first thing is to, to recognize that as a leader, it's not really your job to motivate people directly. It's your job to, to help them figure out what motivates them and empower them to, to try to, to put whatever those factors are in place. Ed DC, who's one of the godfathers of intrinsic motivation, has long said that we have to stop thinking about motivation as something we do to other people and start thinking about it as something that they do to themselves. And so as a leader, you know, if I've got somebody who's not motivated, I want to actually interview them a little bit and say, okay... AJ, I know you've fallen behind on some deadlines. Totally understand that this is an extremely difficult time right now. And, you know, frankly, I'd be surprised if if anybody is getting things done on time. You know, to the extent that that you've been lagging more than other people, we'd love to find out what's going on, what's keeping you from being able to, to stay on track, and what conditions can I put in place that will make things easier for you? And then, you know, I might have a follow up conversation about what are your favorite and least favorite projects? What are the times of day that you feel most and 
and least motivated. And the goal is, you know, is not to micromanage you. It's to ask you questions and hold up a mirror so you can see your reflection more clearly. And then you can start to design those conditions a little bit more into your workday. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. And I think for a lot of us in leadership positions, we're also not thinking about what this isolation is doing to our team members and their loneliness factor. So I think there's this juggling of productivity and not realizing that, well, there's also the social element to work yeah. and the meaning that we get from feeling connected to our teammates and being around each other that you just can't mimic. I mean, even us here trying to have this conversation, it's totally different than being in the same room together 
And many of us were feeling lonely at work before this. <laughs> and, and now it's been exacerbated. I know that was a topic on one of your recent shows around this loneliness at work and, and what we can do as leaders to tap into the community aspect of supporting our team. Yeah, ironically or not, we decided in the fall to do an episode of my work-life podcast on loneliness at work. And it was basically done. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> we said, wait, hold on, we need to go back to the drawing board and and zoom in on some of the unique aspects of loneliness that are part of this kind of isolation and remote work experience. And I think the big takeaway for me, after reading a lot of research on loneliness, after you know, talking to, to people who have dealt with it, who have tried to change it in their workplaces and even at the national policy level in governments, my biggest takeaway is that you don't need friendships to avoid loneliness. You know, when a lot of people think about not feeling lonely, they think, okay, I need a best friend at work or I need a, you know, a tight-knit circle of, of colleagues that I'm really close to and we'll go on vacation together and I'll have them over for dinner and yeah, that can, that can certainly fight loneliness, but it's not going to happen right now. So I guess what I took away from some of my favorite work on this is what my, my mentor, Jane Dutton, calls a high-quality connection. And in, in Jane's world, when she studies this, a high-quality connection is not necessarily an enduring relationship. It's a momentary sense of feeling seen and feeling energized by somebody else. And in the data, it only takes about 40 seconds of interaction between two people to experience a high-quality connection. And so, you know, I think as, as we see people checking in on FaceTime and doing Zoom calls and, and even just texting, there's real power in saying, you know what, if there are a few people that I don't normally interact with, but I just, you know, I haven't heard from them in six or seven months, and I don't really know how this crisis is affecting them, let me just check in for a minute or two and say, hey, look, I know you're swamped. Just wanted to see how you're doing. Just scheduling one or two of those conversations in a day can have a huge impact on your sense of loneliness. One, because you have a, a different kind of interaction that you've built in, which is often more meaningful if you haven't talked to somebody in a while than it would be if you're doing the daily checkup. And two, you also feel like you matter. You know, you're trying to, to listen to them and support them in a way that makes you feel helpful. And that, that seems to be one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness that we have is, is feeling like you've been able to give something to somebody else. And a topic we talk about a lot on the show is leading from the seat that you're in. And even if you're not in a leadership role per se right now where you're managing other team members, you can still be a leader in fighting that loneliness and isolation and reaching out to other team members. And you can be a leader by showing up to the Zoom a little bit early and asking them how they're doing as everyone's getting ready to go on and get the meeting started. You know, I think a lot of us make this wrong decision in my mind to focus so much on team productivity and, and getting that to-do list shortened and those tasks off and we don't take enough time just investing in our team members' mental well-being and their connection to one another to really enhance that productivity. Does the science back that up, that a more connected team, a less isolated team is actually more productive? Yeah, we have decades of evidence on the quality of relationships in a team being an important driver of, of performance and vice, and versa, excuse me, vice versa. Uh, so when a team underperforms, you know, relationships and connections often suffer, and that can become a vicious cycle over time. I think for a lot of, you know, a lot of people in a team, it makes sense to say, you know what, let's take five to 10 minutes of each meeting that we do. And let's just check in and, and find out what's going on. We'll have everybody share a quick story, or, you know, we'll even, if you have a daily meeting, we're going to have each person, you know, kind of do an update each day. Uh, the hope is that in a week or two, if you've got a reasonable sized team, you've heard from everybody. 
The other thing, though, is I don't think this always has to be separated completely from work. Right? So some people are very far on the integrating end of the spectrum. They're thrilled to talk about their kids at work. They're happy to bring their work home. Some of us are more inclined to be segmenters and say, you know what, I like a boundary between work and home. And that boundary has been shattered in the past <laughs> few weeks. We are all that BBC dad now <laughs> whose kids came into his, his interview, you know, whether we want to be or not. And so to recognize that there are some segmenters out there, there are some ways to facilitate connection that don't require as much of the personal or the, the home boundary being bridged. And, and one of those ways is there's an experiment I love that Lee Thompson did where she was trying to get people to brainstorm creatively. And she randomly assigned some of them to just do a simple exercise, which was you pair up and you tell an embarrassing story to your partner. And that just five minutes or so of, of sharing an embarrassing story increased creativity in the group afterward because people experienced more psychological safety. They felt like, all right, I opened up to this person. This is somebody I can trust. And now I can let my bold ideas fly. And at first I was like, embarrassing story. Do I really want to ask people to share those as a leader? And then as I thought about it, I landed at, okay, I can share mine first. And then it's very clear to people that, that they have the discretion to choose something that's not <laughs> going to be so embarrassing that it ruins their credibility in any way. And people seem to get a real kick out of this. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's the exercise for everyone, but it's the kind of thing I would try if I've got a team of people who are maybe a little more reluctant to open up on the home front. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned that because a long time ago, when we had first started some of our earlier programs, one of the things that we would do was have everyone in the group draw an embarrassing picture and hand it to the person next to them. Uh, yes. And it just, it broke the ice and allowed everyone to relax. And what was funny about it is people held on to that picture for years because after we, they handed it to the person of the left, had to fold it up and put it in their pocket or put it in their wallet. And the joke was, no matter how tough you think you are, the person next to you has this embarrassing picture that you drew. And so there was that <laughs> instant camaraderie. And as I said, people would, would write me years later and go, look what I found in my wallet, or do you remember this? And they held on to that. And that creates this buy-in that, you would have if you were in the office building those connections. And that buy-in is what what motivates you to not want to let your teammate down. Johnny, I've never heard anything like that before. And I have to ask you, what did you draw? Well, I, <laughs> 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 let's just say that we had everyone draw a an anime picture of their privates. And they could draw it in whatever fashion they wanted. So there, people were very creative, but it was so embarrassing that it just, everyone then had each other's cartoon private to the person in, wow. in their pocket. All right. This, this just got not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably cut that one little slice out. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. We'll be happy we're not on video because you would have seen. Yeah. I got a stack of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's a little bit disgusting. Now, obviously, Go on. <laughs> remote work is not new. So in your experience with organizations, is there any unorthodox things that organizations who are 100% remote work are doing well that sort of break the mold for this connection, camaraderie, and really building the culture that leads to productivity? You know, I'd love to see better evidence on that. I don't think we know a whole lot about what works and what doesn't. 
I'd say one of the more creative steps that I've seen over time, actually, I'll give you two. One is, I've just learned about this recently. At a couple of companies, people are doing virtual home office tours. You sign into the meeting, like, hey, here's where I'm working today. And, you know, it's, it's another one of those small windows into what makes you a human being as opposed to just a, a professional high achiever that allows people to feel a bit more connected. One of the things that, that Warby Parker did years ago was when they opened up their first office, which was not at headquarters. So headquarters was in New York. They opened up an office, gosh, I want to say it was Nashville or somewhere that was far enough away that people felt like they might be in a different culture. And they decided that one of the ways they were going to facilitate connection was they would turn on a webcam in both offices and just leave it on so that you could see the, your coworkers in the other place. And I thought that was so interesting because people would, you know, they'd, sometimes on their lunch break, they'd just walk by and wave to the camera. They'd meet people on the other end. And I don't know how practical it is to leave open a Zoom channel or a Blue Jeans channel in different people's home offices. But it did dawn on me that if people have a protected space where they're working from, that, you know, sometimes, especially if you're an extrovert, just knowing that somebody else is, is there waiting for your work or, you know, ready for you to bounce something off of them as if they were sitting next to you. I think it's a mistake that in a lot of places, we're only using these, these virtual technologies when we have a meeting, as opposed to saying, you know, we could, we could be connected throughout the day to the people that we normally sit right next to. And there is some evidence to back this up if you do it well anyway. Amita Woolley and her colleagues have studied software teams that work virtually. And they show that if you are online at the same hours, that you are more creative and more productive and the, the term they use to describe the pattern is called burstiness. The communication is literally bursting with ideas and, and energy. And I thought the mechanism behind this was, okay, you know, somebody is responding, I'm getting ideas from them, we're able to build on each other, we help each other. And that may be part of the story, but Anita and her colleagues find something else, which is interesting, that it's motivating and engaging to know that somebody else is about to receive the work that you're doing and that they're right there as opposed to there being a time lag. And I think you can strengthen that connection and probably make uh, make collaboration a little burstier just by, by staying connected to people. Well, I remember we did a creative live a few years ago and we were up in their lunchroom in San Francisco and they had exactly that. They had webcams in all the break rooms mm -hmm. across all their offices and anyone on their break could walk to the camera. We were waving to people in New York and vice versa. And I thought it was just such a unique perspective to connect completely remote workplaces with the team that's in another time zone who probably isn't on lunch, but they were popping in around lunchtime just to say hi to all their friends in uh, San Francisco and vice versa, which I definitely felt even more connected with people that I had never met before in the New York office, just by able to being able to see their lunchroom and, and what life was like for them on another coast. Wow. I think that's exactly the kind of step that would be helpful for a lot of people. I don't know that it's for me as an introvert, but I'll recommend it to anyone who's missing that sense of connection. <laughs> What I have also found a few people doing now is they're struggling themselves with procrastination. And I'd love to unpack the science of this as well. And one of the things is they're doing these group one-hour Zoom sessions where we work together. So you hop in the Zoom, there's really no interaction between one another, and you get to see each other working and you kind of feed off that energy like you would if you were in your cubicle in a normal nine-to-five situation where you see someone else working next to you, you're like, hey, I'm going to buzz through my work instead of in this environment now 
where we really are even more distracted. You know, you think about when we weren't all working from home. Well, it would certainly rub your boss the wrong way if you were sitting on your phone checing Instagram through the whole meeting. I'm sorry, but what were you saying, AJ? Is... I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> sorry. I'm shocked, exist. right? Here in the Zoom, <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked that we're not. And we're distracted. You know, we got notifications flying on our computers. We got all of this stuff going on that's pulling our attention away. And of course, procrastination is creeping in. So from a productivity standpoint, as someone who wants to battle back procrastination, what does the science say? What are the best strategies for us to, to win that procrastination battle while we work from home? I think you've already hit on one of the most effective steps, which is to interact with someone who's productive. There's a Dylan Miner study where if you randomly end up sitting next to someone who's highly productive, your own productivity spikes by about 10%. It seems like either their habits are contagious or you don't want to be the slacker next to the person who's getting a lot done. And so I think, you know, choosing to coordinate work or interact with people who seem to be highly motivated and efficient, that's a decent first step. I've been digging into the science of procrastination quite a bit for the last few years. Some of my own research on it with the former student, Jihei Shin, uh, been talking to lots of experts, reading various studies. And the big aha for me was that I always thought of, as somebody who doesn't procrastinate much, I always thought of procrastinators as lazy. And that's not at all what the data support. The data suggests that procrastination is, is not a work ethic problem. It's an emotion regulation problem that people procrastinate because there's a task that stirs up some kind of unpleasant emotion. It might be a task is really boring. It could be that a task makes you anxious and you feel like, you know, it's just it's overwhelming or you don't have the skills for it or you might bomb in some way, shape, or form. It might be the task brings up feelings of ambivalence. And we can make a whole list of, you know, of, of reasons why people would feel negative emotions or mixed emotions toward a task. But what's powerful about that aha is it opens up the realization that a lot of the stuff we do while we're procrastinating is actually pretty effort intensive, right? So if you've, if you've ever organized your entire closet while you're procrastinating on something else, you're like, okay, you weren't being lazy, right? You were doing something, you were active. It just wasn't the task you were supposed to be doing. And I think once you understand procrastination as an emotion regulation problem, you can start to diagnose what are the negative emotions that particular tasks are activating for you and how do you change those emotions? So let's get an example. What's a, what's a task that, that one of you procrastinates on? I would say definitely tackling my inbox. Okay. Actually, think about it right now. How many emails do you have in your inbox? Uh, I probably have about 100 plus that I need to respond to. Okay. And when you think about opening that inbox right now and looking at those 100 plus emails, what's the, what's the dominant emotion? Anguish. <laughs> Anxiety. Why? Because it's a lot of little tedious asks from other people and, and many times things that I don't necessarily need to be involved in or, or don't make me productive. Okay, good. That's a useful example. So you pinpointed an emotion that leads you to procrastinate on, on dealing with your inbox. Next step then is to say, okay, can I either reframe the task or change the task in a way that alters the emotional experience? So of those asks, how many of them are coming from people that you actually care about helping? I'd say about half. Okay. So potentially half of those emails are, are less anxiety or anguish evoking than the other half. Uh, yes. So I might say, okay, start with that half. 
<laughs> then, you know, on the others, I'd, I'd start to wonder, okay, can those be delegated? Is there, you know, is there a stock response to frequently asked questions that you can generate, right? Is there, is there some way of, of automating or at least batching the tasks so that it doesn't create the emotion with every single email in the inbox? Yeah, I've certainly worked towards that. You know, we've tried to move all of our internal communication to Slack. Yep. And that's where I live. And, and that makes me happy because I'm, I'm working and moving the team forward. And right now, we said this last week, I think this is the greatest time in the history of the world to network with other people because we're all sitting in front of our computers. We are not on planes. We're not going to events. We're all looking for connection. But that said, my inbox is now overflowing with people <laughs> trying to take advantage of that. <laughs> so I'm being flooded with networking opportunities. And hey, I saw you on LinkedIn. I could do this. I can sell you something. So that's really where the anxiety comes from. Yeah, that's fair. I guess the other thing that comes to mind then is... I feel like we're we're in a, a situation now where we're just even more screen overloaded than we've ever been in the past because the face-to-face connection is is gone. And I've watched for a couple years uh, a colleague of mine, Dan Ariely, respond to this in a very interesting way. So Dan's a behavioral economist. He spends yeah. a lot of his time, you know, thinking about how to manage things that that we do inefficiently and trade-offs between different projects and and behaviors and. What Dan will often do is you send him an email and you don't hear back for a day or two and you're thinking, wow, Dan's really slacking these days. <laughs> and then he records a voice memo and sends it to you. And I've gotten a few of these from him where, you know, he just talks for 30 or 60 seconds, but it's so much more meaningful than getting a typed response. And it took him less time than, you know, sitting there trying to craft the perfect email response. And I wonder whether, you know, for anybody who's inbox overloaded, if you just took, let's say, 10 minutes to record 10 voice memos every day, one minute each, how quickly would you get through your inbox? You know, that's hilarious. I know AJ pretty well after working with him for about 14 years. And I know if I sent him a bunch of 60-second voice memos, he, I would get a call going, what are you doing? <laughs> I have to say, you, you want to know what gives me even more anxiety is my virtual voicemail inbox. <laughs> well, then I am not listening to those audios. Or Voxer. Uh, Remember that uh, app? Voxer used to give me so much anxiety. Yeah. Now I have to listen to you ramble. And you could have just wrote a few words that I could read. So, ah, but we're not, hold we're on. not quenching my anxiety in, in the workplace. AJ, hold on, though. You're, I think you're falling victim to projection bias. So just because oh. you don't want to receive those doesn't mean that other people wouldn't want to receive them from you. Yeah. That I, I would definitely agree with. So you, what you could always do is, is say, you could put a, a little text expander in, in your emails that says, my favorite way of receiving communication is a message that's in some text-based form as opposed to voice. I've learned that some people enjoy receiving voice messages and also that there are times when it's more efficient for me. So you just got a voice message. Tell me if you hate it and I won't send you another. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, we need another acronym for no response necessary with that. Seriously. Like no audio response necessary. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, procrastination gets a bad rap. A lot of people have that thought that, hey, listen, it's just being lazy. Why can't you find the willpower to do the tasks at hand? But now we're adding this whole other layer of a distracted workplace. We've been laughing about it, sort of dancing around it, but kids jumping on us, not having a dedicated workspace at home that we had sort of planned out. You know, I've been on the phone with some of our clients and they're like, 
I'm in a small New York apartment. My desk is literally next to my bed and I'm climbing up the walls here. And I think that's also leading to some productivity. What has the science said around your work environment and what we can do to make it more productive? Oh, you know, I feel like my takeaway from the the science of designing your workspace is almost entirely idiosyncratic. So there are probably some individual differences that we could draw some insight from. So for example, extroverts are more likely than introverts to be more productive on simple tasks when they're listening to music. I don't think that'll surprise anyone. I don't know how true this is for everyone, but if we go back to those preferences for integrating versus segmenting different spheres of your life, it seems to be more important for segmenters to have a workspace that's not their relaxation space. space. Whereas an integrator is perfectly happy to have their, you know, their phone next to their bed and their, their, their laptop on their bed. For a segmenter, that kind of freaks them out. But I think that, frankly, too many of us spend too much time trying to learn from other people on this. And what we ought to do is run our own experiments and say, okay, I've got a week coming up where I'm going to have a chance to work in a whole bunch of different mini arrangements. And let me vary those throughout the day and throughout the week and track my own productivity and try to learn what works best for me. And interestingly, what you enjoy is not always what makes you most productive. There's some arrangements that feel comfortable that are not going to put you in your most efficient and focused frame of mind. So I think for me, the test is always, where do I find flow? You know, what's the environment where I get so absorbed that I, I lose sight of time and place and, and even a sense of self? And um, I guess the main thing I've noticed is I am much more likely to find flow in the chair that I sat in yesterday. <laughs> and so whatever task I'm doing that I found flow in today, I'm going to go right back to that particular position tomorrow, and I'm going to keep working there until it stops working for me. Certainly what's <laughs> going to be important, and I love this idea of experimenting. You have this time figured out. We were just told, uh, what was that yesterday, that we're at least going to be in quarantine for another month. So that's plenty of time to start some of the things that you've been putting off. It's plenty of time to figure out what works best for you. But most importantly, during this shakeup and everyone's worlds being flipped upside down, the possibility is very high that life isn't going back for everybody the way it was. And there is a lot of companies who are going to look at this and go, why did we have a brick and mortar place? Why did we have offices? Look at what we've been able to get done. For a lot of people, this could be the new normal. I think it could be. It reminds me of a a study that was done a while back with, it was people in London. I think it was the London tube that stopped working or there was a Mm -hmm. strike and they couldn't take their normal routes to work. And so people had to find a different way to go. And once the tube was working again, something like a quarter of people ended up continuing with their new route. And they'd been, in many cases, going 10, 15 years one way. Never occurred to them there was a better way out there. I think that this experiment that we're, we're all forced into right now could be a version of that where, you know, people try different ways of working. It might be a different time that you wake up and go to bed. Yeah. It might be, you know, that, that different workspace that you set up. It might be the sequencing of your tasks where you thought as a morning person, you should do your creative work in the morning. But actually the evidence suggests that often we're more creative when we're a little bit unfocused. And so as a morning person, I will often have more creative ideas at night. And if you're a night owl, sometimes your, your boldest thoughts come up in the morning. 
once we've been kind of pushed or nudged to try out these different routines, we may well find that that is more effective for us. Well, I feel like in listening to this, it mirrors so much the health and wellness science as well. It's like, yes, there are a bunch of different ways to lose weight, but you got to figure out which one works best for you and which one you can stick to. And sounds very similar when it comes to productivity. There are some things that'll work for you, your favorite chair, getting back to that flow state. There are other things that'll work for others having to constantly be on the move, spontaneous and change. Why don't we take a second and, and pretend we're fortune tellers here and let's peer into the future. What are you most excited about when we come out of this? for how work will be changed and the advances in productivity and, and what we can achieve? And what are you also most concerned about as we come out of this quarantine, whenever that may be? I'll start with the concern. I think the biggest concern is that a lot of companies are going to go out of business and a lot of people are going to be out of jobs. In some cases, right, it's going to be very easy to go back to business as usual. But I've watched, if you look at what's happening in the restaurant industry right now as an example, I've watched even a lot of successful businesses begin to struggle very quickly. And I, I worry that, you know, there's not going to be the capital or really the, the energy in a lot of places to start over from scratch. That's probably my biggest fear from a, a work standpoint. In terms of what I'm most excited about, I think the probably the best possible news is people appreciate things they used to take for granted. I've been surprised by the number of people who've said, you know what, I kind of miss my commute. And I'm not suggesting that anyone is going to grow to love commuting. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most consistent drivers of job dissatisfaction. But, you know, being able to say this is not the worst thing in the world and I remember what it was like to not really be able to leave my house or come into work and see my colleagues face to face, I think that's probably something that's going to lead to a deeper sense of appreciation once we're, we're back more to a standard work life. That appreciation extends itself to others and having empathy for everyone else's situation, especially when you appreciate yours that much more, you begin to look at others. And what happens when we become content is we start living on the extremes. And if you look at social media and where it was culturally leading up to this, we were living very far into the extremes. And this turning everyone's worlds upside down puts everyone in a position to think about what is actually important and what really matters. And certainly coming out of this, that appreciation that you mentioned is going to be dear. And I, I, I my hopes is that it extends to others as well, our, our appreciation for others in our situation. I hope so too. I think we've known for a while that one of the ways people find gratitude is imagining how things could be worse. And the problem with that is, for a lot of people in daily life, that counterfactual is not, it's not that salient. You don't walk around thinking, huh, you know what? I'm, like, I'm lucky I can walk out of my house today. And I think this is the kind of seismic event that make those memories much more accessible than they ever would have been otherwise. I completely agree. I feel like my biggest concern and challenge we're facing when we come out of this is the mental health toll that this is going to take. I think we're all cognizant of the economic impact. Everyone's worried about their jobs. But even when we return back to quote unquote normal, there is going to be this isolation and emotional toll that it, it's taken on us and our distrust of one another. Am I going to get the virus by going into the store, by interacting with people? Should I just get delivery? Should I not interact? Should I be more isolated to stay safe? 
I don't think that's just going to dissipate when the rate of infection slows and we come out the other side. I think there's going to be those fears that are exacerbated, and I hope that our, our leaders don't use them to their advantage to drive wedges between us even further. Certainly, in situations where we're nervous about getting an invisible virus, we're not quite sure who has it. Even if you are asymptomatic, we're now hearing that you can transmit it. So I think that fear is going to permeate and continue to permeate even when we do come out of isolation. And I'm nervous about how that's going to impact those businesses that rely on the social aspect. Yes, there are some businesses that can shift to completely remote. But like you said, there are some jobs that will just not come back as fast as we hope because people, founders won't have the energy or the capital to sink back into restarting, whether that's a restaurant or a store wherever those social components of business and commerce intersect, you know, they have been upended arguably forever from this moment. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And look, there's an old saying that it's hard to predict the future and historians can't even predict the past. And so I'm not I'm not one to try to <laughs> forecast what's going to happen moving forward, but I think this is something we all need to brace ourselves for. I always love having Adam on the show because he not only brings a wealth of knowledge and perspective, but he cuts through all the BS with science. And of course, that's what we love here on the show. Always great catching up with Adam. He's one of those guys who really digs an idea. For instance, let's take an idea like value. It sounds great to everybody, but everyone is like, well, what proof do you have that something like that actually works? And you can always point to his books. It is wonderful. So this week's shout out goes to none other than our friend Woody Belfort. He is quite the inspiration. And he's always joining me on our lives every morning at 830. And it's just great to see familiar faces. Be like Woody. Join Johnny for coffee every morning at 8.30 a.m. Pacific on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all of which at The Art of Charm. You can also email us and send us your questions to questions at theartofcharm.com or head on over to theartofcharm.com slash questions. We want to help you during this crisis. Now remember, if you're new to the show and you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, go check out our Toolbox episodes at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of networking, persuasion, and influence, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, as well as some of our best episodes on building and maintaining relationships, which we all need right now. Don't forget about our AOC challenge. It's free, and you can go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. It's a Facebook group that has over 16,000 people, and we're always there every day to say hello. And you can do all of these challenges from the comfort of your own home. So start improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free, it's unisex, and it's a great way to get the ball rolling and get some forward momentum. And of course, if you want to go deeper during this quarantine, join us in our Core Confidence Group Coaching. Zoom sessions every week with your group and Coach Michael, who's been a guest on this show, as well as me and Johnny, where we focus on building out your beliefs, redefining your story of who you are, and helping you live in the present moment to achieve those crystal clear goals. 
Join a group of supportive and like-minded Art of Charm listeners to bond and grow during this crisis. To learn more, apply today. Head on over to theartofcharm.com slash core. That's theartofcharm.com slash C-O-R-E. Now stay tuned. We're going to be dropping part two of this great conversation with Adam a little later this week. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Head on over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. It would really mean the world to us. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denham at Cast Media Studios in sunny downtown Hollywood. Until next week, I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. Stay safe. Thank <laughs> you.